Hello and welcome to the Chris Ham Podcast, episode number 69. I know the last couple episodes I've hit more monthly, but again, my disclaimer, such is life for me right now. And you guys as listeners, let's be honest, you are taking vacations and in summer mode. And full-time commuting is not where it might be eventually. Maybe a little bit longer now with this with this Delta variant lurking around. But uh, excited to be here as always. Um, reflecting on the month of July, coming off my oldest daughter Eloise's fifth birthday this month. I cannot believe my baby is five. Um, we had a marathon celebration for her. Uh, Jen had planned a mini vacation up the Connecticut coast to an area we try to frequent every year at least once. Nice resort for the first time as a family of four. Um, between COVID and Emmy, our younger daughter being a, a new baby last year. Um, and then paradoxically, with this vacation, it was both incredibly relaxing, perfect weather on the uh, a beach resort, pool, you know, 20 feet from the ocean. But then, you know, and it was very nice. And we wish, wish we had stayed an extra day. Yet, as I said, paradoxically, also the stress of having two young kids is real. And some of, a, of, a, of a, some of a vacation is just the same challenges with a different backdrop. So uh, it was a great time, though. We're, we're definitely going to extend it an extra day next year. Um, once we got back from vacay, we came back. We did a low-key meal of Eloise's choosing. Uh, she's old enough for this now. Uh, she chose a very popular pizza destination in the area that cost us a grand total of $29 for the four of us to eat. Hard to beat that. I'd be curious if her choices when she's 16 are going to be that that economical. Uh, then we did a cake. And then the next day, uh, we did a birthday celebration with both sets of grandparents. Uh, we did pizza again, but this time an artisanal place that is another rock-solid Westchester pizzeria that has an unbelievable thin crust vodka slice in addition to an unbelievable meatball slice. They do pies. It's phenomenal. Uh, called Pizzeria La Rosa. The first place, by the way, Sal's Pizzeria in Mamarinic, a staple. Um, and, and Eloise's favorite pizza of all time. Um, and then finally, on Saturday, we threw a party at our house. We just bought our house last September. So this was the first party we had thrown at our house. And this is a, a, a kid's birthday party. Uh, our house is, is modest for the town that we live in, um, under 2,000 square feet. And we had about a dozen kids and their parents. And the thing about age five, you're in a unique sweet spot with birthday parties. So for those who are veteran parents, you're going to nod here on this one. But those who are, who are, who are less experienced parents, uh, how, who have kids maybe or, or a kid under the age of three or four, let me walk you through it, all right? For your kids, their first birthday, especially for the firstborn, is a total spectacle. The invite list is bigger than it should be. It's eclectic. You got parents. You got friends with babies. You got friends without babies, single friends, old friends, new friends. And really, the baby has no idea who anybody is and barely recognizes anybody outside of, outside of the parents, now, birthdays aged two, three, and maybe four, your kid is young. Uh, the activity has to be structured and organized. The guest list gets a little bit more refined, but parents of other attendees not only have to be there, but they have to be locked into their kids to monitor emotional states, safety, and general happiness. Then all of a sudden, this year, arguably last year, Potentially, you could argue that it was age four, but definitely for age five. And I could see it for maybe an, uh, one more year beyond this. But this is a year that parents of attendees are not yet comfortable dropping their kid off, usually, uh, of the parents uh, of the birthday boy or, or, or girl, um, or, or I should say with the parents, birthday boy or girl being uncomfortable as well. Um, but they could, at the same time, they could come to this party, attend, they don't have to hover over them like a helicopter parent. They can let their kids sort of go off and play while they socialize, maybe having a spirit or two, um, with minimal involvement, which is nice. But when you throw the party, especially if it's at your house, it's freaking pandemonium. Pandemonium. I mean, holy shit. Once this party started, 
We had kids in the player and playing video games, on the bouncy castle, in the backyard, in the front yard playing with chalk, in Eloise's room playing with the stuffed animals, pulling out books, random toys, and the level of carnage and mess at the end of a two-hour party, it, it was just, it's unbelievable. It was the result of a preschooler tornado. Um, and Jen took a video of it. It's just classic. Didn't even capture how chaotic it was afterwards or as the party was winding down. But it was a great time. Eloise had a blast. It's going to be a memory of hers. I mean, yeah, I always say when your kid starts hitting like three, four, five, um, I mean, we could all think back and remember life at that age for sure. So really important to to really try to appreciate those moments. But anyway, so some quick housekeeping before we dive into the show outline. Um, coming up soon, I will have a new podcast cover and logo. And we'll give the credit to the very talented artist once that change happens. Expect that in the next couple of weeks uh, as I walk into my 70th episode. And then secondly, as it relates to, to the next steps here for the podcast, I have my highest profile guest to date joining the pod for episode number 70 released sometime in the first half of August. The topic, COVID. Very appropriate right now. And I'm very honored and excited about it that um, she's willing to be on the show. I think she's going to give a lot of important insight and guidance as we're still in, a, in a, just the craziest time of our lives the past 18 months with COVID. Um, but um, coming up on today's show, we're going to have a little bit of a social media commentary. I'm going to dive into the dynamics of the, the N-word. Uh, and I'm going to introduce a new segment called Linner, which I'll get into when the time comes. And ending, as always, with takes of all temperatures. And because I've been gone for several weeks, the episode releases aren't as frequent, I still have takes. My takes keep generating. I keep jotting them down. In a Google note, sometimes a, an iPhone note. And I'm going to give you a dozen totes today, baby. So buckle up. Episode number 69. Here we go. Okay, so I've shared on this pod my enjoyment of the British Netflix series Black Mirror. Now, for those who aren't familiar, Black Mirror is a semi-dark um, series that is um, has themes wrapped in morality conundrums, explicit metaphors, and things that are like powered by innovative societal mechanisms not currently on our radar. Um, I, I, me I mentioned before it's it's similar to the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone kind of goes more the supernatural route, while Black Mirror uh, extrapolates technology that isn't with us yet. Um, now, one of the episodes called Nosedive mocks the, the social capital of likes on social media platforms by depicting a, a society that is exaggerating the effects of it. And uh, I recommend both this particular episode and the show in general. And for more details, go watch it. But I'd say the popular societal take outwardly by most is the frivolousness of social media in general. And any commensurate measure of popularity um, in the nominal form. So what do I mean by that? Specifically, I mean the number of friends or followers or associated likes or views on posts are things that are um, sometimes dismissed and uh, definitely trivialized. However, we're lying to ourselves and we don't all pay a little more attention than we'd care to admit to ourselves and we certainly might intimate to others. Now, everyone, everyone out there appreciates validation and at times even envy or adoration. So just admit that, okay? Let's not pretend that anybody's above that. All right, there's people that work on themselves and, and don't need that to the same extent that maybe those that are insecure might. But everybody appreciates it to a degree. But beyond that, a specific nuance of likes that perhaps gets equally dismissed is who from your network, from your friends, from your acquaintances, from different walks of your life, who likes your photos and posts? You know, algorithm or not, I think many people take note of this. And I'm not going to berate anybody who does this because I do it. And I think it means a hell of a lot more than one might think. 
I like more posts of the people who I like more, whose relationships I respect, even whose kids are nice to my kids, who I think are more secure people. I'm doing this with not just a conscious element, but as I really reflect, I'm doing this on a micro subconscious level as well, probably even more so. And I'm at least a moderately evolved and increasingly tolerant and forgiving person, especially over the last half a decade or so. You know, one very simple cliche that rings incredibly true to me is the following. Actions speak louder than words. It's one we've all heard. It's one we've all probably utilized. And it's one that I think the majority of us, the mass majority of us, that we think rings incredibly true. Now, somebody could tell you, you are awesome. You're a great friend. You're cool. You're smart. But are they, are they liking photos of you? Your spouse? Your kids? It might seem silly to say that, but just really ask yourself that question. Is one relative of yours never hitting the like button for your post, but always hitting it for an, another close relative? Is a relative of yours only liking photos of your kids, not liking photos of your spouse? Actions speak louder than words. If people aren't showing you they like you or respect you with their actions above their words, if they're not showing you that they respect you and love you and accept you unconditionally, fuck them. Sounds harsh, but fuck them. I have a buddy. Guy's one of the smartest people I know. Humble. He's an MIT grad. He sold multiple businesses. And I suggested to him a while ago, which I'm sure he probably uh, gets these half-baked ideas from all of his friends and acquaintances, but um, I suggested to him and, and, and had an idea that he should create or, or is, is it possible to have some sort of a widget or app that calculates likes and, and takes this data uh, and turns them into information or, or uh, intelligence, if you will. But I believe he voiced some concerns around uh, data rights and piracy, but it'd be an interesting concept. And stepping away from the whole social media example to a very illustrative, timeless, personal example that transcends even the technology of today. I'm talking about actions speak louder than words. Um, I've shared before that a guy I used to be very good friends with about four years ago, just ceased talking to me and Jen along with his wife. So, so to be clear, he and his wife stopped talking to Jen and I. Not he stopped talking to me, Jen, and his own wife. They literally vanished. It's almost, it was almost like a reverse witness protection program where I was extracted from his life, but his life seems to go on the way that it did go on. The guy was a friend of mine prior to that point for the better part of 13 or 14 years. Now, we used to work together right out of college, got very close uh, in about an 18-month span. Then I left this job, and without any malice, we lost contact uh, for four or five years, only to reunite at a bar when, when Jen and I were walking around the neighborhood where he and his then-girlfriend and his eventual wife lived. The four of us hit it off over a few drinks that afternoon, and over the next five and a half years, Seemingly got genuinely close. We, we both got engaged, got married, and spent countless double dates together. And it took effort because they lived in Hoboken and we lived in Manhattan. Now, even as Jen and I had a defining crisis back in early 2016, they were there for us in a meaningful, non-judgmental way when it would, would be easy to hit the eject button, or at least, at the very least, step away from us organically, at least temporarily. Now, Jen had an Eloise in mid-2016, and when she was a newborn, they actually came out to visit. We moved up to Westchester. We were renting for a few years before we bought our house. And eventually, we considered them for godparents. Now, they expressed a degree of hesitancy seemingly centered around a lack of religious conviction in spite of both being Catholic. So we decided to go a different direction um, of a relative 
to be godparents and um, to, to, to be a godparent, I should say. And, and these friends told us they totally got it and no hard feelings. But then, poof, they were gone. Literally, just the communication dropped off in a, in a precipitous way that I've never seen in my life or rarely seen. And when we try to apologize within a f- couple of weeks or a uh, reasonable amount of time of, of, of this decision to change godparents, um, you know, we, we even said if we inadvertently offended you in this process, um, please let us know. We want to apologize. It's a, it was kind of new territory for us. It was an interesting kind of decision for us. And they chalked it up to, you know, the lack of contact to a family health issue. Then nothing, nothing, emails, texts, nothing was returned. And listen, um, if you are a certain age, if you're in your 30s, especially late 30s, 40s, you've had friend, you have friendships fade. You know, maybe even a defining fight crumbles one or two or leaves you not talking for, for a while. I mean, you hear this from people that are older, something might happen, you, you might go decades without talking if you ever resume talking at all. But this to date was the most bizarre and abrupt relationship ending of any sort. And that includes a girl ghosting me when Jen, Jen and I had our break year, uh, the early part of the 2010s, after two or three good dates. So getting back to actions speak louder than words, two actions. All right. About a year prior to this friend ghosting us, we went out to brunch and we took a picture with him and his wife. And Jen and I, you know, every once in a while, you'll get a lot of uh, photo reminders on this date five years ago, 10 years ago, whatever. And we were just looking through old photos recently. And if you looked at this friend of mine, you would have thought we were out to brunch in Syria. That's how unhappy he looked when the, at this picture. And I'm like, OK, there's something that may be going on here uh, that we didn't pick up at the time. Then finally, another action, uh, in addition to this action of being you know, excommunicated from this, this person's life, um, when Jen and I got married, our bridal party did a really nice thing. They put a, a book together, yearbook style, with, uh, with pictures of each of them and us. Uh, everyone wrote about a paragraph, at least. And, it was, and, and regardless of individual or personality, it landed across the board as heartfelt and genuine and unique and specific. But when we got to this one friend, who I will call Bo, for the purposes of this podcast and this story, I'm going to read this message. I have the book actually right in front of me right now. This was his message. Chris and Jen, congratulations on your big day. I hope the memories of this weekend plant the seeds for an amazing life together Keep pushing one another to be great. Love, Bo. Pretty generic. Pretty brief. And to me, that sets an ex- that has all the writing on the wall. That there's nothing specific about the friendship or the or the desire to make the friendship to reminisce about the friendship that was or look ahead to the friendship that's going to be. So in summary, don't dismiss the little cues we get, the little clues and cues we get from our friends, colleagues and relatives of how they feel about us. Things that many might peg as trivial can be way more significant than advertised. They're often a window into a more significant life or relationship theme. So remember, actions speak louder than words. Some thoughts on the N-word next. So of all the words in the English language, two that cause the reluctance of the general public to say are the C-word, used to describe a woman's genitalia, but more commonly a word that's hurled as an insult at a loathsome woman. Now in the UK, the word is actually less offensive, while fuck has way more of a shock factor, according to a former British work colleague of mine. I didn't know that until he told me that. Um, and then the N-word, um, so, so the C-word is the, is, the, is the first word. And then the N-word, which I'll say on this podcast for the purposes of this segment, as nigger, uh, is the other word. Now, how many of you just cringed? 
right? That's how reprehensible the word, I think, is, and, and I think rightfully so. Um, well, said in its non-slang form, it's, it's cringeworthy and has a de- deplorable history. It's a word that's been hurled at black people, about black people, in this country in the most racist circumstances for centuries. It was said as white Klansmen and slave owners lynched and whipped African-Americans over the last uh, several hundred years. And as sometimes, in some cases as recently as, as uh, pretty close to the present day. You know, you know, if you have said it in your life in a descriptive way or as an epithet, then it undoubtedly reflects racism or racist attitudes, at least at the time. It's a word that brings my dad, an almost 70-year-old African-American, great pain. And it harkens a time when he walked through life afraid to step out of line growing up in the segregated South. I hope to have him on this podcast at some point, um, the back half of this year, to share more about his own personal experience. And, and you know, I, I don't see my dad get emotional often. Um, to, to, to hear some of the stories around the N-word and around racism that he experienced, we're talking 50 plus, 60 plus years ago. It's really heart-wrenching to even, to, even, to even see him cry in any way. And to see him cry over that is, is, is powerful. And it's, it's really, I mean, it, it, makes, it, it, brings me, it makes me emotional even thinking about it. But as far as the N-word, you know, as I mentioned, there's no excuse for uttering this word at anyone, even in the apex of anger. Again, it shows you're past a certain racist tipping point if you're, if you're saying this word, if it's in your vernacular. But yet the slang word, nigga, often conflated in the same context, to me is different. Now, this is the word that black youth or even Latin youth commonly use affectionately to casually describe a person of color. Now to my dad and many, this is still unacceptable. To me, I completely get my dad's position. But for me as somebody of mixed race, 30 years younger than my dad, who has never been called the N-word to my face, and as somebody who grew up on rap lyrics, peppered in the slang variation, somebody who experiences racism light, because I am mixed race, because I'm racially ambiguous, because I'm lighter skinned, because I grew up in a different time. I find to me that this word, there is a, there is, there is a bit of gray area here. Now my position on the N word is using the er is a direct reflection of a racist fucker. And anyone who utilizes this should be canceled by default. And I don't think it's harsh to say that. It's, I don't care if you grew up on it, if you heard it from family, if you heard it from friends. If people say it to you, it's unacceptable too. I remember my mom. My mom told a story. All right? My mom's Italian-American. Italian-Americans in general, and my wife will tell you the same as she's mostly Italian-American, have, a, have are been very racist since their time in America towards, towards black people, which is ironic that... Uh, me and there's definitely others that are mixed race that are Italian and African American, um, but like it's something that that's a real thing. And my mom had a friend when we were growing up who was a, a parent of friends of my brother and I, and we've lost touch with these friends. Uh, they've gone a little bit off, I think the the Republican deep end, if you will. I I, I have a little bit more nostalgia towards the towards the guy. Um, no, we're, we're, in, we're in fine terms, but his younger brother, I, you know, I had to mute him on social media because of some of the stuff that he would post and say. But this parent uh, who treated us, hit her and her husband, and they, they treated us like family growing up. I mean, they were welcomed us into their home. They took us on their boat. Um, you know, they, they were very hospitable to us. But my mom went with this, the mom of... Uh, our friends to Atlantic City when she had turned 40, when, when this woman turned 40. He was a few years younger than my mom. And 
Um, I guess one of the relatives of, of, of this woman or friends um, saw African-Americans in the casino and uttered under his breath in the company of my mom without realizing that she was married to an African-American and had mixed race kids who were, who were kids of color, um, said the N-word. And my mom looked at my, my, her friend and said, that's unacceptable. Um, I can't believe that you hang around people like that. And she was really like, I think, surprised, disappointed. At the end of the day, she should have really realized that like Italian-Americans, especially those that are, are not in uh, diverse circles, are, are going to have that. The, the, especially that generation, they're going to have that. Um, and it, I think it affected the friendship. And it didn't end the friendship, but it certainly affected the friendship. But um, I totally understand um, that you have to be canceled. And, but I'm going to go back to using the ah uh, ending as a Caucasian. You have to be careful here. Throwing it around, even parroting a rap lyric, but using it as a person of color to me, doesn't undermine personal criticism of racism. It's, it's a different word. And I think the, using it, if you're a person who is Caucasian, you're white, you're using the ER ending, purely racist. If you're using the A, you got to be careful with it. Um, I wouldn't feel comfortable if my friends started throwing that around every day who are white, but I think it's different. But I understand the position of my dad. I think there's a gray area here. I don't think it's, it's totally acceptable to use both contexts of the word. Um, but I, I think there's a little bit of gray area. So just to be clear, I don't use the term N-I-G-G-A or N-I-G-G-E-R. Uh, just some thoughts on the N-word for me. Uh, take that for what it's worth. Take it with a grain of salt, given my experience, which is not what my dad's experience was. Or any, or any uh, African-American um, who's 100% African-American, especially those who are you know, over the age of 40 or 50. So uh, my brand new Linner segment next. So Linner is slang for a mealtime that lands somewhere between lunch and dinner. All right, this is way, this is the way less common sibling to brunch, which is the combination of the word breakfast and lunch. Linner, obviously the combination of lunch and dinner. Now, brunch, you can argue, is more common among people aged 18 to 30 than breakfast itself, given the sleep schedules, the lack of kids in most cases, especially in this part of the country and uh, other major metropolitan hubs. But Linner, Linner's rare. I can only think of two recent examples of Linner for me. Now, once was Jen and I went away to Boston on a couple's getaway trip. A couple getaway trip, I should say, a few uh, about a month ago, and we had a big breakfast before taking the the three hour Acela train up. Uh, got in around two p.m. Went to check into the hotel on the north end. Uh, then we got hungry, and we walked to a pizza place in Boston, which uh, was a bit overhyped. I already went on a rant. Boston pizza is not New York pizza. It's not Jersey pizza. It's not Connecticut pizza. It's just not. Sorry to say, there's plenty of Italian-Americans in Boston. It ain't as good. But uh, nevertheless, uh, we scarfed down this meal uh, at a 4 p.m. And that was our last major meal of the day. And around 8.30 or 9 p.m., we got a, you know, a snack in an Italian bakery in the North End. We went back to the hotel, watched the Yankee game, and fell asleep. And, um, and yes, by the way, welcome to day one of vacationing without kids when you have kids. But that was one example of Linner. The second Linner example had a similar uh, eating trajectory as far as the, 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 the meal, the lack of a, an appetite for a meal following it. But it was when my wife's aunt hosted a small family reunion up at her house uh, with her husband and my, my wife's uncle near New Haven, Connecticut for her two kids, then her nieces, which included Jen, my wife. And it was, it was nice. It was the first time the side of the family got together since COVID. And the beautiful milestone is the fact that before COVID, there were two kids out of the set of cousins, Eloise included. And now we have eight kids and growing, ranging from five years in Eloise down to six months with a couple stepkids that are um, 11 and 12 thrown in. And to top it off, the youngest cousin, or I should say future stepkids, because this younger cousin has 
is going to have stepkids. She's getting married in about four and a half months. And get this, she got engaged pre-COVID. And this long engagement was a blessing in disguise in a big way. But this was a great mini re- reunion we have. Um, my wife's aunt and uncle catered it. Uh, we all targeted getting there at 1 p.m., but traffic on I-95 is a pain in the ass, particularly in the summer. And everyone arrived, uh, regardless of whether they came from, from the Boston area, which some of the cousins came from, and then the, or the New York area, uh, mostly in the 2 p.m. hour. Now, we ate this big spread of food around 3 or 3.30, then some dessert around 4.30. And that was all she wrote for real food for that day. Yeah, we we drove much quicker to get home, about 75 minutes. And we didn't need anything else. So I I digress a little bit here. But Linder is a meal that doesn't fit any of the normal meal boxes. So the spirit of the segment, uh, as I went on this tangent, is that as I've become an established show, I have particular segments that you all are used to. And this Linner segment is going to be one that's all over the place as far as topics and format. It's going to be quick. It's not going to be as concise as a tote, a take of all temperatures, um, but it's also not going to be a meaty dive on sports, on politics, on philosophy, on sociology, like you heard from my first couple of segments on uh, the N-word uh, before this or the action speaking louder than words. So, um, so without further ado, I'm going to give you Linner in this example. So it's going to be a random thought, might be a question or a statement or a parable. But here we go. Linner topic number one coming up. All right. So Linner topic one party planning. We're going to talk about party planning. All right. So when it comes to partners, there's a cliche out there that says opposites attract. I've shared this in an earlier podcast that I did a couple of years ago. There's actually been studies done. This is actually not true. Partners that last tend to have overlapping values and interests. As I said, I've done a deeper dive if you want to listen to it. But I do find that having different approaches sometimes with certain things is helpful for checks and balances for your spouse. Now, in my life, one example is around party planning and general quantity management. Now, I think more often than not, one of us checks the other the right way, but I tend to go lower in quantity estimation and gen higher when it comes to, to certain things like parties. So for example, she'd rather not have to run back out or have too little food. So I think she'll overorder at times. And perfect example is, uh, is pizza, all right? Now we haven't underordered here yet, so I'll give you an example. I'll eat crow if I underorder or under, undershoot anything as it relates to estimating. And there's certainly times I've been on the cusp She's called me out on it. I've been like, okay, let's, let's add a little bit more. But kid's birthday party. As I mentioned, about a dozen kids, parents, two hours, four to six, dinner time, if you will. Um, and I know the parents are looking at that last meal as, hey, we're gonna, I'm going to feed my kid pizza cake, give him an early bath. They're going to go to bed. They're not going back home and having a dinner. All right? But my thought was these parents, it's Saturday. They might be going out to dinner. They're not going to scarf down pizza. They're standing up. They're chasing their kids. They're five-year-old kids, six-year-old kids, you know, in some cases, three or four at this party. Sometimes the other, uh, as the party ended, we had the other a parent usually come with a younger kid or a different kid. So I'm like, you know what? Each of these little kids, you're going to cut these pizza slices in half. All right? At most, they're going to have two of them. Right? So two of the little slices is one big slice. So already there, one pie is enough for all these kids, all right? I'm like, you know what? If you want to play it safe, get three pies. Get three or four. Jen's like, no, we need five. What happened? I would say about two and a half of the pies were consumed. Not three. Not even three. We had to literally try to give away these pies. I don't remember what happened to the pies. We gave them to people. We wrapped some of them up. Even still, we had some we had to throw out and try to freeze. There wasn't even enough to put in. It was even too much to put in the freezer. So interesting fact that there's yin and yang sometimes in, in couple ships. But I tend, to, I tend to be on the lighter end when I'm planning for, for buying things. And also another example of this too. I give you two more examples. I'll give you one more. Apple sauces. We got these apple squeezes for the kids for snacks. We literally have a supply in there right now that is going to take... Two and a half months for both of my kids, both of our kids to go through, all right? Bought too many of those, but I guess it's always better to be prepared, 
to be a party that has things when kids ask. We, we bought the perfect amount of juice packs. That was when I wanted to buy a pack less, but Jen's like, no, get another pack. So I'm not completely being righteous about this topic, but uh, that's my litter topic number one. Litter topic number two. So my trailer, I talk about being in 12-step recovery. And while I haven't drilled down on this for my broader audience yet, I've certainly confided in some level of details to about a dozen or so people, a dozen or so select friends in my life. And, uh, but even among those people, many heard these details and we haven't spoken about the implications since as it relates to 12-step recovery because it's uncomfortable for people. It is just uncomfortable. And um, people don't want to ask about it. People don't know if they should ask about it. People might assume that it was kind of like a, a flash in the pan to stabilize things at the time. But no, I actually had three recovery meetings a week, uh, Zoom lately since COVID. <laughs> and at this point, I'm five and a half years uh, into recovery. And I've been to over 1,100 meetings. You know, and this is not some hokey cult or pyramid scheme as some ignorant people uh, have intimated to me in the past. There's no tangible benefit for anybody other than uh, recovery, sobriety, uh, there's intangible, as I mentioned, there's, there's spiritual and psychological benefits to anybody involved who goes deep enough. Now, 12-step meetings are a non-dogmatic pathway to spirituality, and a major component of that, and that's spirituality that's needed to, to rid any sort of addiction or compulsion, but a major component of that is self-reflection and character improvement. Now, one of the cornerstone lessons of recovery is the notion that in life, you will be wrong time and time again, no matter how smart or wise or experienced you are. But there's a, there's a caveat to that. When you're wrong, you're going to be wrong. When you're wrong, you have to promptly admit it. It's one of the steps in the program. And exhale for those who are uncomfortable for the last two or three minutes. We're going to go a little bit lighter. But I'm going to admit here, a situation, you're going to see me do, do a step 10. I'm going to admit where I was wrong. And it was Giannis Antetokounmpo. I still can't pronounce his fucking name sometimes. Uh, I've often said his nickname, Giannis, I've been wrong about you. The Greek freak was exaggerated, that he couldn't win a big game to save his life, that he lacked a well-rounded game and had a hard time elevating other players, that he didn't have the intangibles as a leader, as an alpha, to win anything, that he's a regular season warrior, that he's not somebody you should be building a team around. All things I've uttered to, to some people, to friends, to family, whomever, who listen to me. And I'm an NBA fan, but I'm going to eat crow here. All right? I was dead wrong about Giannis. And when it mattered most, he came up the largest. Averaged 30 points, 13 rebounds, 5 assists, a block, and a steal in the 2021 NBA playoffs. And a guy who struggles mightily at the free throw line, even in the playoffs, as you saw these away arenas where we're counting to 10 because he takes so long to set up and he was terrible at the free throw line by and large, shooting under 60% this year. He was 17 of 19 from the foul line, from the stripe in a clinching game six. So now he's an MVP of the league twice, a finals MVP. Giannis, congratulations on your NBA title. You're a great pet player. You're an even better guy, it seems. And you are in a more convincing period of dominance, in my opinion, than the freaking overrated, overhyped LeBron James, who's seen a lot more failure. Yeah, he's, he's won. Yeah, he gets to the finals so many straight years with bad teams, blah, 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 blah. He's not MJ. He ain't even Kobe. And Giannis, to me, at this stage, is dominant. And I don't, and I don't think the run is over yet for Giannis. So... I'm wrong about you, Giannis. The finals ended last week, and I'm promptly admitting it. Tote next. Tote number one. Chris Paul is one of my favorite players of my generation. I remember watching him at Wake Forest, and it was obvious even as a sophomore what a pure point guard he was. I was in my early 20s. He's a few years younger than me. 
And I can I remember thinking how impactful he could be as an NBA player. Barely six feet tall. Close in height to me. You know, within a couple inches of my height, an inch and a half of my height. I was rooting for him hard to win the title this year as a 36-year-old veteran with not many chances left after a very successful NBA career in multiple places. But man, these State Farm commercials, I am over them. All right? The, so my tote here is, I mean, listen, one commercial, okay, even a handful, fine. But him, you know, him playing himself and then also the on-screen doppelganger of himself also as an agent, then this whole spinoff of commercials centered around him, I'm freaking sick of it. I can't even cohesively describe the theme of them. And, and any ad or movie or premise or show of anything that takes too long to explain in just a couple sentences doesn't have legs. So my tote here is stop the CP3 State Farm commercials, go on and inject a virus into the database that stores them and erase them from memory forever. Tote number two. Baseball uniforms and uniforms in general in 2021 are just getting too cute. You know how I feel about the NBA uniforms, how people are wearing solids of like this 20 different freaking varieties at home. You can't even tell who's playing where when I turn on a screen. You saw it in the finals and the playoffs and like the, the, the Atlanta Hawks MLK jerseys at home. Like what the hell? I mean, what is that? You know I'm a social justice warrior. Like what the fuck is that? Now as a man on the doorstep of 40, my goal as I age is to embrace evolution of societal trends, technology, and pop culture to a degree, even as I have nostalgia over the, art, my, the artifacts of my coming of age. But, you know, this ridiculous assortment of jerseys has got to stop. You know, I, I should be able to watch an, an NBA championship Milwaukee Bucks team and be able to tell it's them playing a home game and not mistake them for the Mavericks on the friggin' road. You know, another example earlier this month is the, the Midsummer Class at the MLB All-Star Game and these uniforms. You know, I'm all about evolving traditions and, you know, for example, the Yankees. The Yankees and this whole, like, let's not have facial hair or long hair. I mean, like, what, like enough of that, all right? Like, let's not have the arrogance. You've won one title over the last 20 years. And I'm a diehard Yankee fan. And, you know, their lack of uh, both home and away uh, names on the backs of the jerseys, just the numbers, I mean... Let's have some... I want to know who the hell is pitching sometimes. Um, and, you know, I'm also relatively into some of the new uniforms and logos across all sports. I mean, the Brooklyn Nets in the last decade or so, the Denver Broncos who, who got rid of the Crush Orange like 20 years ago for the for the new, more modernized logo and, and helmet. Same with the Tampa Bay Bucks that got rid of the Crush Orange as well. There's just to name a few. But... Some of these decisions for the sake of the dollar of just expanding jersey sales are just absurd. I mean, the whole Players Weekend in baseball a couple of years ago where you had the Dodgers and, and Yankees playing in these classic historical – who have, that have classic historical uniforms are, are wearing these ridiculous jerseys that you can't even see the names on the back of the jerseys, the hats. They're wearing black and white at Dodger Stadium. It was just embarrassing. And then, you know, at the, at the All-Star Game, these, these hideous jerseys. I mean, with like – you can barely see the logo of what team these guys are on. I'm not – in a baseball fantasy league where I know every player in the league, I watch the Yankees casually drop in on games throughout the year. I don't know the league in and out. I got to look up a lot of these all-stars who are now, by the way, 10, 12 years younger than me, um, at least playing in these games, in some cases like 15 years. Um, but man, um, you know, I, 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 I like them when, I liked when they just wore their own uniforms. So if you're a National League park at home like the Rockies were this year, Everybody wears, who's in the National League on the All-Star team wears their home uniform there. And everybody in the American League wears their full away uniform. Like, can we just go back to this? I just think my tote here, and I can't see this going away anytime soon, but baseball uniforms and uniforms in general are just getting too freaking cute. Tote number three. Fresh maple syrup and smuckers are the only way to consume breakfast items such as pancakes, French toast, and waffles. All right, you see Aunt Jemima, run for the hills. I think that brand of syrup is particularly disgusting. Smuckers, by the way, <laughs> you, you might be like, what the hell is he talking about with Smuckers? All right, I prefer the fresh syrup, the kind that you get that's like pure maple syrup. But if you're going to go with the sugar, high fructose brand, Smuckers has a better, better taste and complements these, these uh, sweet breakfast items better than these other 
basic brands like Aunt Jemima, Log Cabin, and Mrs. Butterworth, which are disgusting. Just disgusting. The artificial maple taste in them is just like, it's like the more real maple syrup you've had, like it's just hard to even go, go to this. I actually ruined my, my breakfast a few weeks ago. Jen and I were out to breakfast, and this place, I ordered French toast, which was mediocre to start with. Well, this is actually when we were up in Boston. And I noticed that they, they took off the, the label, but it was I saw this, the Aunt Jemima bottle. And I'm like, oh, geez. And this has nothing to do with the whole canceling Aunt Jemima thing, but it, the, just the taste of Aunt Jemima just completely ruins the item. So my take here is fresh maple syrup and smuckers are the only way to go with syrup. Tote number four. If you ride a motorcycle, you have a death wish. I'm sorry. I know that might sound rigid. I might, you might be really judgmental of people that want to be on the open road and to have the freedom and the, and the power of, of sitting on a Harley or a motorcycle, but facts are facts, man. Every time I see a motorcycle on the road, I'm afraid I'm going to hit them. They're going to go flying and crash into a windshield and hurt somebody else. They're usually reckless drivers. There's actually stats. They actually are more liquored up more often than not, way more than, than uh, the average driver. To, you know, take that for what it's worth. But in general, let's look at facts around, around motorcycles and death. They account for 1% of traffic, but 14% of deaths. Per mile, they're 35 times more likely to die than a car driver. So how could you tell me, look me in the face and tell me, and I'm going to give you my, my tote number four. You tell me that this isn't true. Motorcycles are a death wish. Tote number five. Bacon, when produced in a mass quantity, is phenomenal. I'll show you, I'll tell you an example about this. So we, we were not to, we were up in Connecticut. Um, we did a breakfast buffet one day for, for our, our, our meal. And in the chaos of trying to feed Emmy quicker because she gets, she gets hangry and uh, give Eloise, who's a very picky eater, the right food combinations while trying to peacefully enjoy her own breakfast, bacon gave me a moment of serenity. And I was thinking about it. Every time I, you know, I've been on any kind of, uh, I've been on, on, a, on a business trip, done one of those buffets, uh, back in the day of bachelor parties, we do those buffet breakfasts. Any kind of like mass quantity bacon is phenomenal. And I'm thinking it has to do with the way that it's cooked and it sits in all this bacon juice or grease or the way that it, like you have it in, in those, in those, uh, the, the, what you, those like canisters with the flame underneath it. There's something about the way that it's stored and cooked that makes it phenomenal. So bacon and cooked in mass quantities is superior than bacon that's on a, on a gr grill or on a skillet somewhere or in a restaurant as a single serving of bacon. Tote number six. So I've been watching uh, the Showtime series um, City on the Hill, which depicts Boston in the early 90s. And um, it, it's very much, um, I guess, uh, an older version of a series that's, that's similar to The Town, the movie that, that Ben Affleck stars. And I think actually Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, who are from Boston, are, are creators of the show. Kevin Bacon's phenomenal in it. Um, I'm getting to know the other casts that are not as well known, but, um, so, so one of the things that gets depicted, at least in the first season, and you saw this in, in the town also as a movie, armored, armored car drivers, right? The ones that drive like the big deposits of, of cash from one place to another. You cannot pay me enough hazard pay to be able to take that profession. I don't care what my educational background was. I understand. So I was looking up the salaries. They could go up to like $500,000 for some of these guys. The average salary is close to $100,000 for kind of a blue-collar job. But it is a horrifying job that seems to put you as a direct – that you put a bullseye on, on your back for any kind of like bank robber or somebody that has uh, automatic weapons. I mean just there's horrific ways that they die. The ones that do die – and I have to look up – do a dive on this in, in life – it's probably horrific, but it's horrific even in these shows. But so my tone here is you cannot pay me enough hazard pay to ever under any circumstances consider taking that job. Tote number seven. So whenever multiple people are taking photos of you, it just screws up the, all the pictures. So here's why. Unless you're in like a, a line of people you're take, or you're taking candids 
or, or people are lining up one by one and taking the photos, you're going to inevitably get a bunch of photos of people looking at different cameras, uh, not looking at the photo. And it looks stupid. You're just kind of posing, but looking at, in different directions. And the more people in your family, the worse this gets. So a perfect example, Eloise's graduation a few last month, like a few weeks ago, like every, like there's all these photos of us that are, we're dressed really well, but we're looking in different directions. Eloise's birthday party, or recently, four of us taking a photo. And it's tough enough with young kids to get them to look at a camera. So whenever you have multiple people taking a photo, and this happens all the time unofficially at weddings, I just think it screws up the photo. It's gotta be a practice that you have to, you have to cut down on, you have to stop and root out. Tote number eight, Jeff Bezos. Yeah, I'm not gonna shit on him, all right? I'm not gonna defend him. I know I defended him a little bit in an earlier episode because I said, don't hate the player, hate the game. I understand the guy uh, is like a, basically runs a sweatshop with the Amazon workers and their lack of breaks and their lack of pay. And I'm not condoning that at all. And I understand the guy's a visionary on the other side and he's created this business and blah, blah, blah. We shouldn't tax him. And he's creating, he sees all these loopholes. He doesn't pay taxes and that's not his problem. I'm not going to go that direction with this rant. Um, but he went into outer space recently and the guy looked like a dork in that video. And I will say that the amount of vitriol he gets as a, as a billionaire, one of the richest people in the world is mind boggling. He needs new PR. I don't know who he's paying for PR, but they suck. Because people just hate him. And for that video to come out with him laughing like a goofball in his line, like he couldn't look more out of touch with the average person. And not even him, if he wanted to go out of outer space as Jeff Bezos, he could afford it, fine. But how could you know, how could you not know as a as a as a PR person with any level of self-awareness that this guy is not gonna be it's not gonna land well to see him in a fucking cowboy hat getting ready to go into outer space. So, or coming up back from outer space, whatever the hell it was. So my tote number eight here is Jeff Bezos. You hate him, you love him, somewhere in between, he needs new PR. Tote number nine. The worst day of the week for an anniversary to fall on is Monday. So any of you people out there, and we're just kind of like learn this now, and, and if you've been with your, your significant other for a long time or specifically if you're really marking like wedding milestones, like Jen and I have been together 14 years, married um, seven years. And we've celebrated our first date before we got married and um, we celebrate the weekend we met and it kind of gets murky because you're going out a lot of different times of the year. So you're not really focused singularly on one specific day until you get married. Now that we've been married and we're getting through the cycle of every single day of the week and the leap years, we've experienced each day of the week from a wedding perspective. Uh, and I will say, um, and I, I guess we, we, we miss one because of the leap year so far, but um, Monday, we had our, our, our anniversary fell on Monday this year and it sucks. And we had a, a really nice time. We went out to a hibachi dinner. And the reason we went to a hibachi dinner is every other option in Westchester County in our area, especially with two kids, it was, was just closed in the summertime. We got married in July. This month, the options of summer open places are extremely limited. So having a, a wedding anniversary on a Monday, particularly if you have a summer wedding, you guys, if you haven't experienced it yet, try to do some, re, some detailed research ahead of time. I even just tried a few days out to try to, try to book places. Everything is freaking closed. And with COVID, it's even more exacerbated. So my tote here is Monday is far and away the worst anniversary day of the week. Tote number 10. OJ, that's from Concentrate Orange Juice, not OJ Simpson, Orange Juice from Concentrate is disgusting. I don't understand how any diner carries this. I can't imagine the cost, it's so cost prohibitive for a diner to have orange juice that's not from Concentrate. It makes a world of difference for breakfast. Orange juice that's from Concentrate tastes like this awful worst version of like orangina mixed with high C that just, I mean, it has such a disgusting aftertaste. It's 
has, if you could just taste all the sugar in it, the added sugar, it's disgusting. So the difference between concentrate and not from concentrate, concentrate adds sugar and water, not from concentrate, it's just purely the fruit juice. It doesn't have to always be fresh, it could have preservatives, and I'm not saying that I'm, I'm bougie and I need like fresh squeezed orange juice, which is obviously superior to everything, but orange juice not from concentrate is far and away better. If you're a restaurant, if you're a business, invest money into it. It's not gonna move the needle as far as putting you out of business but it makes a difference from the consumer experience. And if you haven't noticed it, if you're hearing this, you're gonna notice it now. OJ, that's not from concentrate, that's from concentrate is disgusting. Tote number 11, cross-gender texting etiquette as a married person has to be very limited one-on-one. Now, well, let me explain to you what I mean. When you're 30-something, 40-something, 50-something beyond, there's very few women that are not family members that you should be texting with any regularity or even at all. So you have to be very careful with this sort of thing. I mean, I have a few friends from college, women that I'm friends with, that are also in the same position for the most part, either in serious relationships or, in, or married with kids mostly. There's probably less than a half dozen that I talk to regularly. I could probably, I could, I could count literally either from college or my early 20s. There's, I think, five women or six women that are good friends of mine that I'll text on their birthdays, I'll text on my birthdays, we'll text for anniversaries, we'll catch up every so often. It'd even be okay if we went out to a lunch here and there if we were in the same place. But the, this, these kinds of relationships should be limited and you got to be careful. I see a lot of examples of people not following this in the suburbs. And it's shady. And I'll just show you, like, when you know people are on the same page. So Jen and I, um, you know, as we're now getting, getting into the community of ours, uh, we're making more friends. Our oldest, Eloise, is, is starting kindergarten in, in, a, in a, couple, a couple months. And um, we're starting to meet parents. And... There's uh, neighbors of ours that have, you know, two young kids and, um, you know, was walking by their house and was talking to both of them. That's why I was walking Bruno and um, Jen was interested in um, getting the number for the woman. We, we didn't have, we, you know, as of a couple of weeks ago, we didn't have either number of the husband or wife. So what I did while the woman and the wife were there, to be respectful to the, to, the, to the, the husband and wife were there, to be respectful to the husband, I said, oh, let me get the husband's number. I'm going to text him and I'll give him Jen's number so he could give it to, to, to you. I'm saying this in front. So rather than saying, hey, woman, at, woman Y, give me your number so I can give it to my wife, I'm very just careful and delicate or, or saying, oh, I'm going to text you my... Like, until you establish a foursome as a friendship, like so I think it's okay if you have a husband and wife that you're friends with along with your wife, then you guys could text as a group, but you, but you gotta keep the texting very limited, very limited. And if you're gonna text them, it's gonna be like very kind of few and far between and only for specific things like acknowledging a birthday or something very, very specific. So my toe here is cross-gender texting etiquette as a married person has to be limited. Tote number 12, QR codes. I have no tolerance for these. They suck. They have to be, they, you have to abolish these immediately. All right, listen, I understand COVID. We don't know how long it's going to go. This Delta variant, all of a sudden now, we're back to wearing masks again inside. Um, fucking sucks. But we have to follow the science. We have to follow the CDC guidelines. Uh, topic for next episode. But the QR codes thing. This was started early on at some point, and I, I think really accelerated with COVID or maybe started around COVID, but where you can't actually hold the physical menu when you go into certain places. And it's on your phone and it's can, you know it's said to be convenient, but it really sucks. I mean, your phone is a much smaller surface than a menu and COVID is not spread on surfaces. So why do we still cling to QR codes? Let's get rid of them. Let's have paper, all right? If you wanna have recyclable things or menus and, and have, have them so you're not like wasting paper. Like that's fine. But can we just abolish QR codes? QR codes suck. That's my tote number 12.
Thanks for listening to the Chris Hamm Podcast. Please make sure you are subscribed on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please rate and review me. And finally, please follow me on Twitter, at Chris N. Ham. Your support and feedback are incredibly valuable. Tell your friends, family, colleagues, spread the word. Take it easy, friends.